Well, when the team that you cover makes it a point amidst nothing really happening outside of waiting for a JT Real Muto trade and seeing where Bryce Harper or Manny Machado will end up. With all of that not happening or waiting to happen or whatever it is, when the team that you cover goes out and signs Ryan Flaherty and Deanna Navarro to minor league deals with major league camp invites, it calls for an emergency podcast, an emergency edition of the Selvia's Godcast with Zach Meisel. I'm TJ Zuppi, and we are from The Athletic. It is so important, Zach, that we sit down and break this down. I think a fun story to write would be the- – like if you want like a clickbait, one of those, uh, you know, those ads you see at like the bottom of an article and you click on it and it, it's some just trash article that turns into a slideshow and you have to click through all these ads. How about <laughs> the top 10 Cleveland Indians free agent signings of the 2018-2019 offseason? Like Flaherty and Deion Navarro are probably in the top five, are they not? Well, yeah. Who thought? <laughs> I don't know, man. With the way this this thing started, there were some hopes that things would end up in a pretty big spot, that we would end up at Progressive Field with a really big press conference. And Ryan Flaherty, Deanna Navarro, uh, probably falls a little bit short of calling for a press conference or even a conference call. But it has excited the fan base. So much so that I have gotten so many reactions to the initial tweet that I sent out. And really, none of them are positive. But it's people being invested, man. They're fired up about this happening. It's something. Yeah, I I mean, that's not the biggest news of the day, though. The biggest news of the day comes from a Yankees reliever, Zach Britton, who has fixed his name. Now going by Z-A-C-K instead of Z-A-C-H. I have long held that there is only one correct way to spell the name Zach, and it is the way I spell it, Z-A-C-K. And my argument has always been people named Nicholas don't shorten that to N-I-C-H. It's N-I-C-K. And so here we are. It's not quite the same. And and there are more than one. There's more than one way to get to Zach. There's Zachary, Zachariah. It's probably it other ways that I'm not you're, even you're thinking of. It's not Zachalus. It's, it's not quite the same as Nicholas. It's a, it's a different starting point. I disagree. So why can't someone decide that they would rather go with an H? Why does it have to be your way? Because it's the correct way. <laughs> you can do whatever they want, man. No, well, I, I actually... I go, by, I go by TJ, and my name is, doesn't begin with a T. I mean, it's kind of confusing when I have to tell anybody about it. Like I a remember... couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, someone showed up to bring me some food for lunch and they asked what TJ stood for. I don't know why they asked that, but they did. And so it goes into like this 30 second monologue that I have pre-prepared because I've done this so many times of how my name is Anthony, and then Anthony becomes Tony, and Tony becomes TJ because my middle name is Joseph, and my dad went by TJ when he was younger, but then he grew up and became Tony, and so they started calling me TJ, and then I stuck. So it just becomes this whole. Well, that's thing. like TJ House. Remember his name? Uh, what's his name? Uh, his real name? Yeah. I don't. I just remember it's. But he you... had it. It stood for Tiger Junior, right? Right. Right. 
I think, oh, it's, it's Glenn Anthony House, but the TJ is Tiger Jr. And he did not want periods after the T and the J. Right. I actually prefer, I prefer the periods after the T and J. See, we can have multiple ways of going about this. There are personal preferences in this world. Yeah, but anyway. (laughs) No, this is important. This is the most important thing that we we figure this out. Last weekend, I convinced a woman whose young son was named Zach with an H that K was the proper spelling. And by the end of the argument, she agreed. That, she probably just it. agreed to get you to shut up. Yeah, you might be right. So his, his from as far as following this story as closely as I can for a story that I don't care that much about. Apparently, his legal name is Zach with a K, but he's gone by Zach with an H yeah, for his why? entire career. I don't understand how, that. How? <laughs> how does that happen? Is it like the the Brett Favre syndrome where people? mispronounced his last name that he just became Favre, even though that's not really how you were originally supposed to pronounce it. I don't know. Or the Joe Theismann Thiesman thing. I mean, I've been going (laughs) people when they have me on the radio or TV shows, they often say my and I won't correct him because I think it sounds more professional, even though (laughs) my mom gets pissed off because it's, it is technically my and it's, led to this whole argument people don't know now now i don't even know how to pronounce my own last name so yeah well as long as you stay away from measles that sounds awful uh well i mean i've had many i've probably heard any way you can pronounce my last name i've heard over the years all the way to where it sounds french like zupe like you know uh back in the day when i worked at uh, 850 wknr uh, one of the hosts there at the time was Michael Regai, and he always said TJ Zupe, and I think it's partially just because that's how Reg talks, and the other thing is just that's how he pronounced it. And to me, that just sounded more French, and I'm not, I'm, I'm Italian, and I don't know, it just didn't, never really sat right with me. But it was, it's also Michael Regai, and he just sounds larger than life, saying anything pretty much sounds cool, so I just left it. Yeah, that's better than he always calls me Jordan Bastion, so. <laughs> Uh, and while we're kind of along the same lines of, of that, there was also the reporter in uh, the winter meetings that congratulated me for my excellent Browns coverage. Yeah. You've done a great job. Thank you. I've really taken pride in that, uh, that Freddie Kitchen story that I wrote was really good, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, really good. Just so anxious to dive into this Browns offseason. Can't wait. Don't get me started on our Browns writer spelling his name Z-A-C. <laughs> we don't right. have time for that. It's a good way to kind of put a bow around something that no one really cares about. Um, we're not here to talk about Ryan Flaherty and Deanna Navarro. We are here to take some listener questions, and that's coming up in the second half of the show. Today, the Pakota rankings are up at Baseball Prospectus, and I bring it up because our our last podcast that we wrapped up last week at some point was very gloomy, doomy, cloudy, kind of fits the weather for today as we record this, just rainy and dreary and yucky surrounding the outlook of this team. And a lot of that's rightfully so, just based on the way this offseason is gone. However, there are certain things along the way that I think are worth bringing up to remind 
not only fans listening to this podcast, but I think even for us too, because we get wrapped up so much in the everyday of following this team. It's a good reminder that Pakota thinks the Indians are going to be pretty good. Uh, their projection system has them at 96 wins, which is tied for the second most in baseball. Part of that is because they play in a really crappy division and you can accumulate wins pretty quickly when you look at some of the field. The other part of this is Indians have some things going for them. It's not the popular thing. It's not the easy thing right now to defend what has happened over the winter, but I think it can get somewhat easy to get lost in the shuffle and forget that this is still a team that is near the upper echelon in the American league is probably today you're able to pencil them in as a playoff team. And despite everything that could have gotten better throughout the entire winter and off season, this is a team that when you look at the pitching staff, when you look at how things can go in October, I don't think that there's any way you can say they don't have a shot to go in a championship this year. So I don't know. What were your takeaways from the projections that, that came out today over baseball prospectus? Yeah. I mean, it reinforced that. Uh, look, if you want to say the twins could have a shot to win the division, that's fine. Like, I still think things would need to go south for the Indians from an injury standpoint or a regression standpoint. And guys like Sano and Buxton and Berrios would have to take major steps forward for Minnesota. But, but I can see that. The Indians' floor is certainly lower than it's been the last few years. But all the people saying, oh, look out for the White Sox, too. And it's like, look, even if they sign Manny Machado, I still don't think they're a threat for another year or two, at least. We don't know if any of their kids are good yet. Like, the, the ones who have come up to the majors have not proven that they're going to be anything special yet. And, and there's time for them to correct that. But at, at this point right now, the White Sox are no threat whatsoever. And so I think this was a good reminder of that and also that 60% of the division is still pretty bad. And those three teams, Tigers, Royals, White Sox, they all could possibly lose 95 to 100 games so that's gonna help you that's gonna help inflate the win total and, and I know like home field advantage in the playoffs doesn't mean much and like seeding doesn't really matter and it's always I mean it, we've said in the past like random variants can happen and it's sometimes it's the hot team that wins I, I've said I think it's if, if you're a better team, you have a better chance of getting hot at the right time. That's why it's not a surprise when the Red Sox win 108 games and then win the World Series or the Astros a couple of years ago, who looked like the best team and won the World Series um, after the Indians got knocked out. Like, I, I, think, I think it helps to be in this division, obviously, 96 wins. They don't, I don't think they seem like a 96-win team, but you have to evaluate it in that context. And if they can actually capitalize on playing in this division, that could be beneficial. They, they just like, like to win 91 games in that division last year was embarrassing and spoke to how, as we've talked about over and over, they never clicked. They never hit on all cylinders. It never seemed like they were headed in the right direction. And they, they snuck into the playoffs as the three seed playing in that crappy division. And it's like, okay, well maybe, if you capitalize on the division and use it to your advantage and win 96 games like Pakota thinks you might, then you could be the one or the two seed and have home field advantage and just have a better feeling about where you are. I just, 
Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I, I I'm talking in circles here. I, I think I think the Indians are good. I don't know that they're great. I and I think playing in this division kind of clouds everything. Sure, no, I think that's fair. It's tough. It was tough to know who they really were last year for sure. And in the playoffs, it sort of revealed itself to be they were who we saw them being all year long, which was an enigma, very inconsistent. And at the end of the day, just not on par with uh, the Astros or or the Red Sox. I did find it interesting. We haven't spent a lot of time discussing this at length, the ways that they'll be a a bit of a different team. I think we've talked a lot about how they'll be a, a similar team this year based just on the entire construct of the roster, but they're going to go about things playing in a different way than they have for at least last year. And maybe even the year before that, uh, they'll be a little less clogged on the bases. And I think they, they feel like there's some value to be gained. there, kind of going back to the way that they played in 2016. Um, so you have Santana, you have Bowers, you swap those out for Encarnacion and Alonzo. Uh, you've obviously upgraded your ability to go first to third or in Mm -hmm. uh, Bauer's case, maybe even steal 20 bases out of the first base position, which, you know, is not something you you typically see a lot. Uh, The other thing that we haven't talked about a lot or really at all are the ways that they'll be better defensively. Now, when you look at the offense, I don't know if the strides that they're going to take defensively are going to be enough to make up for the runs they're not scoring run prevention. uh, There's a lot of an inexact science as far as, you know, how much you can live with taking away as opposed to trying to go out and get offensively for yourself try to dwindle that down in wins, but defensive side of the ball, things get a little bit murky. When you do look at the Pakota projections, the one thing that stood out to me is they see as far as fielding runs above average, that's their metric on how they're evaluating defense over baseball prospectus. They see the Indians as the best defensive team in baseball as far as preventing runs defensively. Now, initially you're like, what? Like, how could that be? But when you remove Michael Brantley out of the equation in left field and you take Melky Cabrera out of right field, those were two spots where you were getting nothing and probably giving away a lot defensively. And also you look at a full year behind the plate with, with Perez. I know Gomes and Perez over the years have been kind of valued maybe in the minds of fans as kind of being similar behind the plate, but baseball prospectus has always loved Perez behind the plate. And in fact, has typically graded him as one of their five best defensive catchers, despite not playing every day. And I'm interested to see, Gums wasn't bad back there, but if you're talking about elite, super elite, and that's what BP thinks Perez is behind the plate, how much of a difference can that make over what you already had in Gomes? And if this is going to be like a 70-30 split with the catching position with Perez getting that much time behind the plate, what is that going to do for the pitching staff? How different will things be in that regard? There's a lot there that I know isn't really sexy to talk about on a podcast, but it is sort of interesting to see how that's going to play out. Yeah. I mean, there's potential here. Like the rotation could be the best in baseball. I don't think there's any arguing that they they're high on Shane Bieber. They think he can take a Clevenger like leap. Clevenger could take another step forward. We know Bauer's always in the lab looking for ways to get better. I think Kluber is going to be on a mission to prove that he's not on the decline and that he's still a horse and, 
Uh, we know Carrasco is as consistent as they come. So rotation could be great. And, and you pair it with Roberto Perez and you don't have to split time between there's no personal catchers anymore. And uh, you have a better, more athletic defense behind you. Like their run prevention should be as good as anyone's. And they're going to get to pitch against three teams that can't really hit 19 times a piece. So that helps. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I, I'm struggling to see. I think we both feel the same way about the bullpen where it's like, I certainly wish there was more certainty out there, especially after what they went through last season. Um, but at the same time, there are probably enough intriguing options and rebound candidates that like, I'm more worried about the lineup and I, I don't, it's so weird when we evaluate these projections and it's like, it's almost like college football where it's like, okay, like I know Oklahoma is averaging 49 points a game, but no one in the big 12 plays defense. So I don't know how they would match up necessarily against Clemson. Like it's, it's apples to oranges almost. And the Yankees and the Red Sox, one of those teams is, is going to be a wild card at best. And then you have the Rays sitting there lurking right behind. Like it, it's, it's so weird. The unbalanced schedule is – I've always hated it. And mm. and I think it, it's – finally people are realizing it because of the way the Indians snuck into the playoffs and then had their doors blown off. And yet you had the Red Sox and Yankees facing each other in the first round. So uh, it's, it's – it's, it makes it hard to evaluate this team. And I think because of that, they need to not be as laid back and carefree as they were – last year I think they need to whether they mean it or not they need to just say like games in April and May and June in the division actually matter and we need to play well and prove that we can turn this on before we get to October because they they, they showed last year that you can't flip a switch it, it doesn't just automatically happen so um, I don't know there are, there are things to like about the roster but boy you look at what that lineup might look like I don't I don't know. That doesn't read 96 wins and a, a legitimate threat in the playoffs to me. Well, I think the point here is to, to achieve that level, knowing what the offense is probably going to be, they're going to have to be one of the best, if not the best, run prevention teams in baseball. Sure. Do I think that that's going to happen on the field? I, I don't know. I don't know that what Jordan Luplo does in left field or Greg Allen does in left field the upgrade there defensively over what Michael Brantley was is that enough to make up for 20 percentage points of offense lost I mean I I, maybe but that's tough I mean things have to go really really well defensively Roberto Perez has to be a top three defensive catcher as far as framing and blocking runs and throwing guys out and uh, the, the part that's hard to really judge, but you know how he leads pitchers through a game, the sequences of pitches. You know, is is he capable of doing something even better than what Jan Gomes was doing behind the plate and calling a game? Um, there, there's a lot there that would have to go really, really well, and have to live up to everything the projections think that they can be. And it's not to say it can't happen, but I think it's going to be difficult. I would like at least one more bat in that lineup to feel more comfortable, comfortable about where they're at. We've run through the list. I mean, I'm not a big Marwin Gonzalez guy. 
because I, I feel like the one year that really he jumped off the page feels more like an outlier to me. Yep. Still pretty good player, solid player, and fits a, a role that they would absolutely need. And so that's why I still feel like, you know, if for some reason they found some money under a couch somewhere, that they can, that, that would be a guy that would fit. Um, Mike Moustakis, you and I have both said, there's no reason why they shouldn't, despite whatever they say they have going on financially, based on the way this market is, he is somebody that they should be pursuing. No doubt about it, because he fits so splendidly. Just one more guy that contributes offense at somewhere 15 to 20% above average would just make me feel so much better about the rest of the composition of the roster. I mean, what do you, what do you think the lineup is on opening day? Lindor first, Santana second, Ramirez third, mm. Kipnis second, Bauer fourth. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know who's hitting second. I, it, well, are you asking me what Tito will do or what I would do? Because those are probably two different conversations. Are they that different, though, given that like six of the nine guys in that lineup are not what you want? Maybe. Because I think Tito values lengthening a lineup out a little bit more than you and I do. To, to me, I just say, who are your best hitters? Let's make sure they get the most at-bats. And I don't care about any preconceived notions about what a number two hitter or a number three hitter or a number four hitter should look like. I don't give a crap about that. So to me, I need to get Lindor and Ramirez first and second in plate appearances. Then I probably need to go uh, Santana. He needs to get the third amount of plate appearances. Uh, I, I, I really don't know. <laughs> I don't know beyond that. I don't, I don't know that there is going to be some magic way to put these guys together to create something magical. I think you already know what you're going to get. It's not going to be Tito twisting and pulling levers to make this offense go at a bigger capacity because of the way that he's going to stack them. I, I don't think you can pull that many tricks out of your, out of your hat. Yeah, and I, that's why I think, like, I don't know what Mike Moustakis is going to end up getting on the market, but geez, he'd be a perfect fit. Hit you 30 home runs, play pretty good defense, probably hit fourth for you, play every day. Um, and even, even if you added someone like that, you'd still have a bunch of question marks in that lineup. I don't know. I, I Back to our original point, like the 96 wins, like I, I understand how they arrived at that, that projection. And I'm certainly a firm believer that the rotation could be really, really good and put up some ridiculous numbers. Um, and, and the division helps that. But this off the lineup, I just I, – I don't – I don't know. You're relying so much on your two young switch hitting infielders. And I don't know – I don't know. Like we saw, I think, what happens when they carry the offense last year. And that was when they had Brantley. Yeah. Yeah. I still look at that. I, I still look at that. Brent, the, the loss of Brantley offensively and them having not replaced that. It's still, it still st- sticks out pretty monument, pretty monumentally. And I, again, I can see that somewhere in the aggregate that you lose some on offense, you gain some on defense that 
maybe it's not as critical of a loss as it is just on paper when you're thinking about offense being the most important thing that stands out on a daily basis. But offense is that, that one thing that just feels so, so – well, especially when you're talking about Brantley, but just so consistently helping you win. You know, for defense, for like a left fielder to, to carry you defensively, the ball has to be hit out there and has to be the right sort of ball that you can go get. It has to be the right amount of balls in play. And we're talking about a starting staff that had four guys strike out 200 last year. Is a defense super, super important compared to a team that doesn't have a bunch of strikeout type pitchers? Probably not. So that's where it, it's, you have to, there have to be enough chances for the defense to go out and steal runs for you. Whereas the offense, you know, they're going to get four to five plate appearances a game. And you know that they're going to have multiple opportunities to impact the game on a daily basis. That's why the offense will always be the sexier thing that comes to mind first. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's still time to make additions. They can make additions during the season, but so can everyone else. Is there a free free agent out there that you think is just a foregone conclusion he's going to end up here? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Uh, I've got a roster projection story coming Monday where I pick the 25 players I think will make the opening day team. And first of all, trying to figure out the bullpen. I know you took a stab at it this week on The Athletic. Man, is that impossible. And I'm with you. I think it's going to boil down to who has options remaining. Um, But I – for some reason, I just I think Adam Jones is going to end up with the Indians, and I think it'll be like a really tiny deal, like one year, two million with another few million in incentives. Um, I just I, that makes it makes sense. I don't I don't love him. I don't know that. I don't think you can guarantee he's an upgrade over what you have, yeah. even though what you have isn't all that great. Um, but you might as well take a stab at something, something that might still have something left in the tank. I'm just, I'm with you in that. I'm not, it's not that I dislike Adam Jones as much as I'm not sold that he is a guarantee to be a huge improvement over what you already have. And right. if, if the financials are as tight as they have led us to believe, uh, through their actions or through their words, then is a third of a win worth spending what limited flexibility you have that is going to cut into whatever you're able to do with the deadline? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, no, it but... shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter, Zach. But I'm just looking at this through the prism of how they would evaluate it. And if I think he is a, gosh, I don't know what he would be. In, the, in a corner spot, is he a, one win player best case scenario one and a half win player okay if, if that's true that's your best go, outfielder then if i go by that then i look at the again these are not this is not the bible it's not gospel but if i look at this and i say well pakota has naquin set for 1.3 wins above replacement and they see jordan luplo at 1.1 if i think adam jones if all goes well is 1.5. Okay. What did I gain in this? Yeah. I, I mean, that's just the way that they're going to look at it. Um, 
I'm not necessarily saying it's right or wrong, but that's the way they're going to evaluate. Yeah, I mean, it's the reason why they haven't signed how many different relievers who have gotten like two, three million dollars on the market and would probably be shoe ins to be on the opening day roster. Yeah, this is such a weird team to evaluate because if you live at one end of the spectrum and say, everything's bad. Everything is a disaster. This off season was terrible and there's no reason for optimism. You're wrong. But if you're on the other end of the spectrum where you're thinking everything's fine, the pitching staff is godlike and the offense will figure it out and the defense will all make up for it. I don't think that's correct either. You could always say the truth is somewhere in the middle with everything, but I feel so much with this team. It's, it has been extremely difficult to try to not speak out both ends of your mouth because I think there are multiple things that are true and multiple things that are false about this team. Yeah, I mean, like having a great defense is awesome, but I don't think that's going to stop Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton from hitting bombs over the fence. <laughs> now, why would they be doing that against the godlike pitching staff? I mean, we have to be doing that like in the eighth inning. Right. Yeah. Like when... I- when Tyler Olson is out there for the third batter because he can't be taken out of the game thanks to baseball's new rules. And he has to face a right-handed hitter and he allows one to go over the fence. And yes, your defense would not be as impactful. You are correct. Thank you. Do we want to take some questions from the fans? We do real quick. Were there any of those that we, the, the rule changes that have been proposed or that are being thought of, is there anything that was just like, what, Uh, what, Come on, this is stupid. No, I've long advocated for the DH in both leagues because watching pitchers hit is miserable. Um, That's not strategy. That's just stupidity. Um, And, like, I I don't know. I I don't have as big a problem with the game as I do, like, the marketing of the league and how players are paid and the arbitration and minor league wage structure. And, like, stuff like that would be at the top of my priority list ahead of, oh, we need to shorten games by four minutes because, like, really? If, if a game is two minute, two hours and 56 minutes instead of three hours, is that going to draw millions more fans that you weren't getting before? No. So I, I mean, it's not to say it doesn't happen, Zach, but how many times do they make pitching change in a middle of an inning and you think, oh, this is a disaster. This is the reason why no one watches baseball anymore. Maybe – Maybe. I mean, it does happen throughout the year. You're just like, oh, just leave this guy in already. It's a seven run game. But those feel like so few and far between where that actually takes place that it's really going to make any sort of dent in anything. Right. Yeah, I, I, I just. I don't know. There, there's a lot. There's a lot that needs fixing. And these little tiny tweaks to to like carve 30 seconds off of a game are not. That should not be at the top of the priority list. Um, but, you know, I, I think major changes are coming eventually. And I think, as we joked last time, I mean, it's, I think we can all expect to be finding part-time jobs in 2022 when there's, there's no baseball during a lengthy player strike. Um, and uh, I'm sure the game will look quite different after that. Yeah, I- I, I can see some changes on the horizon and like everything, we'll all be pissed off initially. And within about a month, we'll have forgotten that it even happened. Sort of like the 
four pitch intentional walk that we all lost our minds over. Everyone was going to die because it was going to be implemented. Uh, I've come around on that rule. I don't think it's that bad. Like put up four fingers and let the go go to first base. Fine. Let's save yeah. 30 seconds. I don't have a problem with it. No, but it's it just like, like I, I'm fine with that, but I also don't think that makes that much of a difference. No, no, I, I agree with you. All right. Yes, we will take some of our, your listener questions rolling in on Twitter that coming up after this. All right, Zach, what do you say we roll into some of these tweets? And first one comes from Quincy Wheeler. Says, guys, in Keith Law's breakdown of the Indians' prospects, he's very high on Oscar Mercado. Remember that guy? Saying he could be with the Indians by June and has the tools to hit 20-plus homers eventually. Do you think he has a decent shot to make the club out of spring training, or will we see him by June? I'm going to say no to spring training. Um, It seems like he's – he's got some guys to pass up on the depth chart. I mean, I think Leonis Martin gets center field. That's his territory. It's that's not even debatable. I think the rest of the outfield is kind of open for interpretation. The thing to remember is Martin's a free agent at the end of the year, I believe. So I think it's going to come down to like Mercado and Greg Allen, right. And just kind of like hunger game style. One of them will survive and be the center fielder of the future. Uh, there are things to like about Mercado. He can run like crazy. Um, I, I don't know what kind of a hitter he is or he will be. He just turned 24. Uh, his, his minor league numbers, he had one year, 2017, where he hit really well. And then last year, he was really good at AAA with the Cardinals and wasn't quite as good with Cleveland. I just – like if, if he's going to hit for power – I don't know. Like, I have no knowledge about whether that's possible or not. But he's certainly intriguing. Like, if he's a good defender in center field and he can run and he – it's not like he's a 550, 600 OPS guy. Like, he can certainly be a little better than that. Then, yeah, that'll play. I just – at this point right now, it's hard for me to, like, differentiate him or Greg Allen or, or make an argument for why Mercado would deserve um, that billing. When they made that trade last year, I thought for sure we would see him in September. I thought it was just setting up where he would be up to help the the team in some capacity and maybe steal some at-bats against lefties. I mean, they're going to be opportunities to do that again this year with Leonis Martin and left field is still maybe some combination of Greg Allen and Jordan Luplo and And Adam Tyler Naquin (laughs) and Tyler Naquin over and right. I mean, there are going to be opportunities for somebody to come up and hit against left-handed pitching. I would think at this point. So maybe I, I, I do remember when they acquired him last year, he looked like a guy that was somewhat intriguing, but kind of fits the mold of the rest of the outfielders that they've sort of assembled. A lot of these depth guys, they all have something about them that kind of makes them a little intriguing, something you kind of tilt your head to the side and look. Eh, maybe there's something there, but it's just uh, I don't know enough or we've seen enough of him at this point to say that he's going to steal tons of plate appearances on a team trying to win a World Series, but we shall see. Uh, next one comes from uh, Z-A-B-Z-C, Zabazizz. 
the team seems more unorganized this year from a PR standpoint. No promo scheduler, all-star tickets, no opening day information. What's going on? Is this just adding to the what has been a kind of a PR disaster for them this year with the way this offseason has gone? That even something is as in the past, people are like, okay, promo schedule, great. Now it's like, where's that? Where's all this all-star stuff? Where where's the rest of this stuff? It's like you're looking for anything. <laughs> from this team to feel good about it. Yeah. I want to say I heard the promotional schedule will be announced next week. I think I heard like right around the start of spring training. Um, I, I mean, that's not, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that's like what fans are more upset about than. I think it just compounds on yeah. all of this, <laughs> but I spoke to someone in that domain recently and asked like how how has it has it been impossible to try to promote positivity and the answer was more or less yeah (laughs) like like, and and they know like we've said this the the front office like Antonetti and Chernoff know this roster isn't perfect I think if they had their choice they would go sign a couple guys or like if in an ideal world, I think they would have traded Kluber and gotten the pieces they wanted. Um, But none of that happened. Their hands are kind of tied. And I think from a PR standpoint too, it's like, well, like we, what, what can we do? We can't like brag on how, you know, we're projected to win 96 games and everything is all right. Like I think that's, the weird element to this is that there's no like blind optimism. There's no, there's no lack of self-awareness. Like I think everyone is aware of what's going on here. And it's just a matter of, it's kind of out of everybody's hands. And I think people who work for the Indians just badly want the season to start because the only thing that's going to rescue this team from a perception standpoint is just winning games. And, and more than that, because, You'll still get people who chalk it up to the division being crappy. They just need players to blossom. They need, like, Jordan Luplo to have an amazing April and May so that they can be vindicated a little bit. Like, hey, we told you, like, we, we believed in this guy, and he looks like our left fielder now. Just, like, so they need stuff like that to happen. I, there, there's, I think they just realize there's nothing they can do. And I don't think that's the reason why the promo schedule isn't out yet, but um, it, it's it's a battle they know they can't win. All right, so I looked it up. Last year, you, what's your guess on the date of the promotional schedule released in 2018? January 20th. Ooh, close. January 26th. Because it's, it's usually around Fest. Correct. Usually at that point. Or probably at that point, people were still thinking, where is the promo schedule? It's January 26th already. Release the damn thing. All right. Uh, Christian says attendance has been near or slightly over 2 million for the past two years, with it being unlikely to see much more in terms of immediate addition. Do you see that number being similar or taking a hit in 2019? Um, I, I think it's going to be – so what I don't know – they expected like 2 million is kind of their plateau. Now they don't expect to exceed that. They think, and and let's face it, they made the world series. They signed Edwin Encarnacion. They went in that crazy winning streak and that 
produce two million, uh, two million fans in attendance. So they don't like. It's hard to top that from a momentum standpoint. Where they won 102 games, they signed the prized free agent after a surprisingly great year. Maybe if they win the World Series, they could top that the following season, but it, it's not by much. So it certainly won't be higher than two. I, I think it might take a little bit of a hit. The one thing that's going to keep it from being a disaster is the All-Star game because people want tickets to the Home Run Derby, to the game, to Fan Fest and all that. And one way to do that is to, I think, have season tickets. And so that that should protect them a little bit. I don't remember the answer to this. Do you have you covered All Star stuff before in the past? I have not. I have I was, successfully avoided it until this year. I've, I did it once a couple of years ago in Miami. Um, it was, I, I think, it would be one of one of those experiences that you say is fun to do it once, and beyond that, probably annoying. It will be different this year because we don't have to go anywhere. It's just coming to us, so it's not going to be uh, that big of a a deal. It will be weird to see how they get everybody from every team all packed into the ballpark. That's always fun. Um, I was going to ask though, and because you don't have any experience in this regard, it should be an interesting response. If you could only go to one, which do you pick home run derby or the all-star game? Just as a Um, fan, just as a fan to watch it as a spectator. I would have said the derby in like, the late nineties, early two thousands, when you had Sammy Sosa with his hat on backwards and Griffey and those guys. Now the field is so watered down. It's like, like I saw the list of the dunk contest participants. And I think like two of the four I'd never heard of. And another, like, it's just, why would anyone tune in for that? And it's a shame that you can't get stars to participate in those kind of events. I would say, because of that, I would say the game. But I think 15, 20 years ago, my answer would have been the Derby. Seeing both, the especially now the way that the Home Run Derby has been set up with the rule with the ticking clock. Yeah, and that's, home- it, it's better than it was, but I still think it was better when the big stars won. Well, well, I'm just here to tell you that you're wrong. Having seen it up close, the Home Run Derby is phenomenal. Now, this was in Miami with some of the bigger stars participating um, and seeing some of these sl- – I mean, the balls that were hit pretty much off the – almost off the roof on the back wall uh, at the stadium in Miami was mind-blowing to see. So They were hitting – I think the one ended up hitting the ceiling – and when they built the ballpark, if I remember correctly, they had gone about studies and they wanted to make sure they had a park where no, it was impossible for any hitter to ever hit the ceiling, ever hit the top of the, the roof. And so they did all these studies and they came away with a, a distance that they were 100% sure no one could ever hit. And it got hit during the home run derby. <laughs> it's because these guys are monsters. Uh, but I, I think that's going to be a lot of fun to watch at Progressive Field to see how the ballpark looks during the home run derby and with the way the this, the rules are now, I mean, it is fun to watch on, on television, but the one thing that I think is different about watching on television is you're watching like three, four five different angles just kind of get thrown at you at once. 
And it's it, for television, it's just how they have to do it. Cause if it just gave you one camera angle, you would miss things, but being in person. And this is one of those where it might even be better to kind of be up higher where you can see everything to be able to just take it all in and see these balls that these guys hit and how they're crushed in the trajectory and to be able to watch it all the way uh, was pretty eye opening. So I think if I had to pick between being at one or the other, it would be the home run derby for me. And you're probably going to get Jose Ramirez in it this year. So that's well, exciting for Indians fans. If he remembers how to hit a fastball properly. Uh, Christian also wants to know, how do you see the playing time at catcher playing out between Perez, Plawecki, and Haas? I said 70-30 between Perez and Plawecki. Am I off on that? Do you think it'll be more sounds, skewed? Sounds good to me. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that great input, man. I mean, Could I, have I don't lied. like it. be a little different number. Yeah, it, it's. I don't know what Haas is gonna, how he's gonna crack the rotation. I think he's got to hope for an injury, and like the wow, other what two, an, what an a hole if he's out there rooting for an injury. <laughs> I don't think guys, that's what he would do. By the way, <laughs> like I don't, I don't know. I mean, what would Perez? How poorly would he have to hit to lose his job? And for how long would he have to hit that poorly? Mm, mm. And how good would Plawecki have to hit, too? I mean, if he isn't what he's been over the past couple of years, then you're still going to live with the bad offense and the greater defense, right? I don't know. I mean, I feel like we've seen we've seen scraping bottom of the barrel as far as offensive production. So uh, what would the OPS have to be, like 450? The <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's that would be really bad. But what if, what if he has? What if he's carrying a 400 OPS, but the Indians pitching staff, starters and relievers, are all just out of their minds? And you can tell that a lot of it is Roberto Perez. That something he has done has unlocked the greatness in everybody. Are sure. you going to live with that? What's the lowest OPS you would live with, with Perez continuing to? make everybody on the pitching staff a god with a lowercase g? Uh, zero. <laughs> so never reaching base, just a complete automatic out. Yeah, I mean, is there really that much of a difference between zero and 400? Yeah, 400. Yeah, I think that's... You reach base is, one time out of ten instead of zero? That's better than zero. I think that's, yes. If you actually are running out a guy that has a zero OPS that hasn't reached base ever, at that point, you're going to DH for him, right? Like you would make the pitchers bat because even if we're looking at what they do in the National League, they have more than a zero OPS. They do occasionally do something. Yeah, I mean, one thing that kind of frustrates me about the roster, too, is if you had a better lineup, you'd have better options on your bench to pinch hit late in games. And you could pinch hit for your catcher, especially if he's carrying a 450 OPS. So I don't know if I want, like, Max Moroff pinch hitting for Roberto Perez. Um, but there are there are ways you can get around it. They did that, remember, in the playoffs a couple of years ago. They were pinch hitting for their catcher um, at any opportunity and then switching to the other one. So Perez, his career OPS is 638 which actually probably I would have guessed lower just based on the way things have gone. Uh, his worst OPS was last year, 519. So you're talking about even 
a hundred points below that. Yeah, I, I think you. I think you live with six fifty for sure. I think that'd be great. Yeah, six fifty. I think you could stomach, depending on what the rest of the offense is doing too. I mean, there's if if you have several black holes offensively, then it gets harder to live with. But Perez is the one guy where at least you know he's at least you assume in this scenario we assume he's getting it done defensively. So you're not getting completely nothing out of the position, even though even if you're the best catcher that's ever played behind the plate, there still is a line where your offense is hurting you more than the defense is helping you. Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know, like you said, is Plowecki that enticing of an option that you'd make a switch? I don't know. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. And, and look, Perez has wanted this chance for a few years now. He's going to get it. And he claims he's going to prove some people wrong. Well, We'll see if he does. Do you want to do a random Indian of the day? Do you have one or should I have one? I was rolling through and trying to find one that even I, there would be no chance for me to even remember he played for the team. Do you uh, want it like that yeah. difficult? Eh, bring it on. Really? You want it, to, you want it that level of where I just have no memory of them even playing for the team. I mean, I, I'm here to make a fool of myself. <laughs> Uh, this man, born, uh, let's see here, born on October 18th, 1960, uh, made his Indians debut at the age of 36. So tail end of his six-year big league career. Uh, and I say six-year big league career, I just mean that he appeared throughout six seasons, not necessarily six years of service time. Uh, over those six years in the majors, he compiled a 554 ERA. Made 27 starts, appeared in 91 games, uh, record of 10 and 23. Not that that's going to help you at all. And the, the year that he was with Cleveland was 1997. He made four appearances, all of which starts. This tells you the state of the Indian starting rotation uh, at that point in the season. In his four starts, he went 26 in the third innings, allowed 18 earned runs for an ERA of 6.15, and lost three of those games. So you're giving me someone who made four appearances with the Indians, and that's it? Yes. Yes. <laughs> you said you said you were game. Um, where, who else did he play for? All right, so hold on. I was actually going to pull up and see when he made those starts with the Indians. Okay, so all of his appearances with the Indians that year came in July of 2017, came four in a row, and then he was actually – he went to the Texas Rangers after that, and I was going to see how he got sent to the Rangers standby. He was selected off waivers by the Rangers from the Indians on October 4th, 1997. So made four starts in July of 97 and then was claimed off waivers. Uh, He, in his career, he also played with California, Houston, Kansas City, Atlanta, Texas, and Baltimore. So the summer of 97, July, so I was getting ready for my eighth birthday. I was at Hiram (laughs) summer camp. That might have been the summer I got stung by a bee in the eye. And that would have been better than living through these four starts. <laughs> uh, Jason Hakame. It was not Jason Hakame. Good guess. I think we actually used him at one point. At one point over the the winter, he was drafted by the Cardinals in the twenty third round 
in the 79 amateur draft, 23rd round. So to last six years in the majors, drafted in the 23rd round, nothing to shake a stick at. Uh, signed as a free agent in 1986 by the Angels, was re- uh, released by the Angels in 89, signed with the Astros in 90. Then he was signed as a free agent by the Indians in 92, but released in July. Never made any big league appearances by the Indians. Then went to San Diego, signed with Atlanta in 95, signed with the Orioles, was released by the Royals in 96, and that's when he signed with the Astros. And then days later, he was granted, or months later, he was granted free agency and signed as a free agent by the Indians on December 19, 1996. All of this is to say that you will never get this <laughs> random Indian. Can I have right handed pitcher? Can you have what? Initials? TC. Tom Candiotti. No, he it is not way Tom more Candiotti. than that. Um, yes. I have absolutely no idea. Uh, let's see here. He is the father of, let's see, father like, of. Are we uh, sure his, I've heard of this person? <laughs> I was not sure I had heard of this person. That's why I asked if you wanted to go this far. Uh, he actually has a son that has played in the major leagues before. Uh, back in 2014, he played with the Milwaukee Brewers, hit three home runs, hit 185, 744 OPS. He was a first baseman. His first name was Matt. So his son also played in the major leagues. So Matt C. Matt C. I have no recollection of this player playing either, so I don't think that's going to help you. I don't know. I think I have to give up. Uh, he also went to Mount San Antonio College. Oh, Wal- why didn't you say Walnut, that? Walnut, California. Why didn't you say that? Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other thing I could give you. Uh, his The longest he was ever with the team was the Angels two, over two years, made 19 starts, 506 ERA. Uh, so he, throughout his career, threw 232 innings, a career 554 earned run average. Do you give up? He sounds like a real winner. Uh, I have no idea. Well, let's see. I mean, if, in the interest of fairness, his ERA plus was 79. Okay. So in the era that he pitched in, he was still bad. Okay. Terry Clark is the answer. Who? <laughs> Terry Clark. He pitched for the 97 Cleveland Indians? He did. He also wore the number 47, which is now worn by Trevor Bauer. Yes. So in 1997. Here are the the <laughs> games that he pitched in. So he came up to appear at Yankee Stadium. His first game at the Indians is at Yankee Stadium. They need him to go start. He goes five and a third innings, gives up two runs. Yeah. But walks three, strikes out two. Paul Rigdon's done that. I mean, no big deal. <laughs> so you're thinking like, hey, hey, maybe this guy's got some staying power. Uh, then he follows it up with Boston. So you got New York and Boston back to back. What do you know? It's the two best starts that he made that year. He went seven innings against Boston, only gave up four runs, six hits, walked two, struck out five. So through two outings, he's got a 438 ERA. Not bad. Then things go drastically wrong. He pairs against Seattle on July 24th, gives up six runs. Actually gives up eight runs, but only six were earned in six and a third innings. And then 
to show you the state of the Indians pitching, he went seven and two thirds against Anaheim. In seven and two thirds innings, he gave up seven runs and allowed ten hits. So somehow he he labored into the eighth inning, giving up seven runs. That was the career, the Indians' career of Terry Clark. That Indians team was so bad. I don't know how they made the World Series. <laughs> Eighty-six wins. The pitching staff was so bad. Oh my god. Terry Clark. Okay. Terry Clark. You can subscribe to the podcast by following us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TerryClark.com, and various other uh, <laughs> various other ways you can follow along, including Anchor. Do you have any parting words before I thank Brett for leaving us a five-star review? We do thank you, Brett. But anything else you would like to, to say before we wrap things up this week? Big fan of Brett. Um, yeah, I mean, spring training starts in a few days. That's nuts. And Say we what? Will, we'll have plenty of coverage from you from Arizona, and it is uh, it's go time. I'm ready for it. Are you? Uh, how are you feeling? Are you this always oh, like absolutely. sneaks up on us. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely ready for it. In years past, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I mean, it's baseball starting period is fun, but it's like, you know, are you ready to be away from your family and loved ones for? Long periods of time. Are you ready to be at the ballpark every day, seeing the same people every day? You're always like, "Eh, I don't know if I'm quite ready for that. Kind of have to prepare yourself mentally for that. But I am absolutely prepared. I was just on like YouTube and I came across some baseball highlights and just wasn't even anything special, but it was just seeing baseball again. Mm -hmm. It was very exciting. And I think we're to the point of the season where it's, you start to look, you've been looking at the same roster for three months now. So now you're like, you know what? Jordan Luplow isn't all that bad. And Greg Allen did hit pretty well in September last year. Careful, careful. <laughs> just, just saying, if you stare at something long enough, you burn a hole in it. Uh, or so I've been told. We're out of here. Have a good weekend, everybody. And we'll catch you next week. See ya.